All right, uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, we had a great members meeting. It was about 70 to 100 of you who came, so thank you. Um, it makes, it makes uh, doing the work of the church so much better when it's well attended. And uh, what I'm going to say is going to take a few minutes, um, but I think it's worth uh, doing. I don't get to do this. I don't do this every Sunday, but I ought to do it some Sunday. So I just want to share with you a little bit of the process on how we have arrived here in uh, the search for a name for the church and uh, a little bit about where we're going. Okay, so about, about a year ago uh, this month, the church uh, charged the communications team uh, to s- seek out and do the work and find a process for paving us to get a new name. And the reason we we gave them that charge was because since we had planted downtown and the nature of the plant was such that we're not, we weren't trying to differentiate ourselves from them, we needed a name to kind of, kind of uh, hold us together. And we recognized that Hokeston Baptist Church was unable to effectively do that given, given uh, the circumstances of the church plant. And so we sent them on their charge. The team was an open team, which means on several occasions we said if anybody wants to help out... Um, let us know, and we kind of built a team from that, and they got to work, and they did great work. And this is how they started. They started from a survey that they had conducted several months before on what are the like identifying core features of the church. What does the church think the church is? If you may remember filling out a survey several years ago where you, we said, well, we think that you, you said, you think the church is this and that. And we, we said, let's start there. And uh, so that, because any name that we, we move towards ought to be true about us. And so they started thinking about that. And then they canvassed the church for suggestions for a name. And uh, that was made, uh, that, that canvassing and that volunteering for a name was made in several places. And many of you gave names. I think we got a list of over 40 names that were given. And when they received this list and accumulated it, they began to try to develop uh, principles to filter those names down to a manageable bunch of names. And some of the ways, some of the logic behind the filtering made a lot of sense. If you recommended a name to the church um, that was on the walls or doors or signs of a church six blocks from here, we put a line through it, right? Because somebody's using it right down the street. If you uh, gave us a name, which, God bless you, uh, some of you may have recommended a name of an expression of faith that is not our own. Like, for example, the Church of Christ is an actual denominational label of, of, of a kind of a different kind of church. And if you said that, it, you know, it, I'm not saying it's not a good name, I'm just saying it's taken. And so there were some simple principles that helped us whittle some down, but there were some other principles that were not so simple. Either they weren't simple to understand or they were not easy in the sense that the communications team did not feel charged with the mandate of kind of single-handedly establishing that principle. So the team came back to the church leadership and they said, here's our predicament. We can kind of get down to here, but we have a few big questions that we need your help to answer. And we took those questions and talked about them. And then we went to the deacons and we talked about them. And then we went to the church council and we talked about them. And then we shared those criteria with the church, which is these additional principles, which was one, we're going to seek to have a name that is not trendy. Two, we're going to seek to have a name that's not geographic because we're going to be in multiple places. And three, we're going to seek to have a name that expresses an idea larger than denomination. It, it, we're, we want to be more central to who we are and to the faith. And those were the three criteria that 
um, we kind of pushed to the, back to the communications team to say, go finish your work. And what they did is they, got a, they whittled it down to about a list of eight. And these were eight honest names that had come out of the canvassing of the church, and they, were, they expressed kind of the general spectrum of the name from borderline trendy to borderline something else, and kind of went back and forth. And when the list was given to me, I looked at it, and I kind of did the, ugh, because I was like, I can get around some of these, but I didn't have, nothing jumped off, off the page as though it was, um, it fit exactly well. Um, but they were good, just didn't jump off the page. And then, you know, Pastor Terry looked, and his, his reaction was a little bit the same. Like, this is the eight names that we, the church, have generated that just didn't jump off the page as, as though uh, there was an obvious winner. There was no obvious consensus. And we gave the, uh, the list of names to the deacons, and uh, there was a kind of a collective, hmm. Some of them were quiet. I think because their mother taught them if they can't say something nice. They ought not to say anything. It was a little bit of that challenge. Of there was, it wasn't that the names were bad. It was just that there was no obvious consensus around any one name. And we brought the names to the church council. And we said, here's the list of names. And the same thing happened, though they weren't quite as quiet. And, uh, and then we are, here we are, 2012, November. We have a church that we've planted that has been running without a name for two and a half months. We have a pastor who's showing up to an unnamed community and it's the end of the year, and you just want to tie it up, right? And we chose not to. So what we did is we put a pause in the process. We stepped back, and we said, I think we just need to pray about this. We need to pray. There, were, there was no obvious standout of a name. Um, and you couple that with the fact that there are families in this church who um, I love and respect who were already kind of groaning in the process. And we said, "Why?" it just did not seem right to try to champion something where there was no obvious word from the Lord. Let's step back, let's pray, and give the Lord a chance to speak back in. That was December of this year. And so that's what I, I set out to do. I, I began to pray. I've, I've prayed uh, a lot about this, an awful lot about this. And I began to plan 2013 around a question that I thought would help us faithfully answer this question in a different way. I said, well, maybe what the problem is is we're trying to answer the question of the name in a bubble. Maybe we're just trying, it's, it's like it's its own exercise. When in reality, what we're doing with this church plan is a lot bigger than that. We, we really need to answer the question, what does it mean for us to be one church or, or one whatever? What is that oneness? Well, how do, we, how do we describe that? We hadn't really done that as well as we needed to. And I said, maybe that's the question we need to be asking, and maybe the Lord will bring the name out of that. And so we planned for 2013. We said in 2013, when Pastor Jeff gets here, we'll have a pastor's retreat. We'll, we'll pray and we'll work and we'll plan around that question. And then we'll have a leadership retreat, but we'll have the church councils from both campuses together and the deacons, and we'll, we'll pray and envision in that direction. And maybe, uh, maybe the Lord will work out of that. And, and I will be honest with you, I Really wanted the Lord to work out of that. Pretty much told the Lord, you got to work out of that. Because uh, I have no other idea. And, uh, and then I got sent to Germany, which seemed very confusing to me. To be so set and centered on that being the place that the Lord would help us. And uh, he plucked me out and sent me away. And I was very confused and so I went to Germany, and I prayed, and I read. My, I read some books. 
In fact, I read a book on leadership. My wife gave me a book on leadership for Christmas, which is a little better than getting a treadmill. Uh, I, I asked for it. I'm just kidding. I asked for it. But I, I was a, a Christian book on, on leadership, and I went, and I sat down to reading that and, and praying around this question of how, uh, how to lead through this process and uh, ought I lead through this process, that sort of things. And I came with a conviction of, yeah, we really do need a shared name, that, we are, we're doing something together. This is, this is important. I really believe this is important, and this sets the stage for what the future looks like. And, and uh, yeah, I got a strong conviction about it, but I was in Germany, and lo and behold, before I knew it, they plucked me out, and they put me back here. And in enough time that we really didn't miss anything. I mean, we doubled up a little bit, and we caught up, and we we managed to have our pastor's retreat and our leadership retreat. I mean, we fit right back into that 2013 schedule. And I tell you, I'm telling you all of this. Why am I taking the time? I'm taking the time because it's difficult, I think, for anybody to appreciate a process that's long. You can, two months into an 11-month process, you forget how it even started. And, and for many of us, especially if you haven't been here that long, you may think that this is just a punctiliar idea that showed up in time. It's not. It's been... It's a year that we've been asking this question. And I arrived home from Germany, and Pastor Jeff was on staff, but I had never seen him. And we had our first staff meeting together, which was just great. I mean, you, you can imagine, I think, if you've been working towards something that you believe very strongly the Lord is in for so long, and for the pastor of a new church that has come out of this fellowship to be in the same room was a blessing for me. It was, I mean, the Lord is kind of like, don't miss that. And so we were, we were having this staff meeting, and it was great, and I was like a kid in a candy shop. So the meeting ended, but I wasn't ready for it to end, so I said to Jeff and Terry, I said, let's go to lunch. Let's do a working lunch. So we drove down two fat guys, and I had a working lunch. And during the whole time, Terry and I were kind of talking about the the church, the broad church, you know, filling in gaps and holes, and, and Jeff's a listener, and we're talkers. He compliments our team very nicely, and uh, so we're blabbing, and I'm blabbing about the name, and Terry's saying his bit on the name, and it kind of went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and finally, I stopped, and I turned to Jeff, and I said, well, do you have any thoughts? And he said, well, yeah, actually, I do have thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts, which we didn't know, because we'd been talking the whole time. So uh, we stopped, and, and this is what he said. He said, well, as I've been visiting your church, you know, during the search process, which you should imagine, just appreciate this for a second. Very few outsiders have a better sense on our church than a pastor who's considering a calling here, and he's leaving the role of senior pastor to come be a campus pastor. So he was looking. And he says, as I was looking and listening, this is kind of what I seem to understand about your church. He says, first of all, it seems like the church plant was a unified effort. It's not a really that different of a thing. It's not trying to be that different of a thing. It happened. It was not church division being masked by the word church plant. It was God spreading this church to a new location for the sake of his kingdom. And he says, and that's really, really good. He says, that seems like when you talk about grow, mature, and spread, it seems like that really is what happened, is that this church, like a tree, he said it's kind of grown and matured, and then it's spread, and it's given birth to a new tree. He said, I have this image of a tree, and it's finally like dropped a nut, and the nut has 
germinated and it's sprouting out and it's becoming its own tree. That, that, that's happening. And, and he said that, that really seems to make sense. And he said, and further he said, and, and I should tell you, he spent a lot of time with the founders of the church during his search process. So what's interesting is he's probably heard more of the first stories than most of you have had because he's with, been with Jack Hill and the Romines and so on and so forth. And so he said, and when I think of you as a tree, and, and he goes, and then we do the question and answer sessions in the sycamore room, and you talk about the sycamore tree. And, and so even things that may be richer in our heritage than they even are right now to us kind of stood out to him. It was a relief that he saw. And he said it was interesting that, you know, you started worship in the sycamore room when you first acquired this building in 82. And he says, and I think of a tree. He says, I really think you guys are like a tree. But he says, the reality is, is you're like a tree in downtown. They're like a tree. You're like a couple of trees. He said, you're like a grove. He said, you're like a grove of trees. This is a grove of trees, are trees that are the same species, that are, the root systems are connected, and they kind of grow alongside one another, but they're in, you know, at one level they're independent, but they're close, and they mutually benefit one another, and they protect one another from the wind and the rain, but they reach the same sun, they do the same kind of growth. You're like a grove. And when he said it that way, and when he gave the story, it was like, we were mesmerized. We were like, yeah, we're like a grove. <laughs> That's what we are. I mean, it just, it landed. And I'll say, you know, you give any name to somebody, you just say, hey, we're going to call ourselves Flapjack Church. And it sounds empty and devoid. But when it's placed inside the story and the rationale, it had a lot of strength and it made a lot of sense. And we grabbed it and we said, this, this I can wear. I can put this shirt on. In fact, it felt when he said it like my old favorite shirt that I've actually been wearing for an awful long time. I just didn't know who made it. And so we begin to think about the nature of the grove and what is it. And it is, it is in fact, a, a, very, a valid, high-fidelity image of what we're trying to do. In this church, we have planted another church that is just like us at its core identity. It'll grow to look different. It'll have idiosyncrasies about it. But at its nature, it is us. It's going to be the same kind of tree. And we are working together for the mutual benefit so that we can grow and reach the sun and mature together. And so we, we liked it, and we took that name, and we used the grove, the idea of a grove, as a way of us understanding what does it mean to be one church. And we brought it to the deacons, and we said, the grove? Well, actually, first we brought it to our wives, <laughs> which we're batting like 7%. I, don't, I mean, we're not even in the batting order when we bring our ideas home. Usually they beat them up, and they... But oddly enough, both of our wives... Uh, Pastor Terry and mine, they were like, hey, that's a pretty good name. Who, that can't be from you. Who, who said that? <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, so we passed that test, and we brought it to the deacons, and the deacons this time weren't quite as quiet. They were like, you know, I can get behind that. I, it was helpful that you told us a story. It's helpful that you kind of let us in that door, right? But now that we've come in that door, we can kind of work with this. And then we brought it to the church council, and when we questioned, asked the question, what does it mean to be one church, they said, they said, yeah, we can get behind that. The story matters, how we're there, but let's get behind that. Let's, let's make this the question. Like, ought we be called the Grove? So on Wednesday, in this room, we brought it back to the church. Now, we have not voted on it, so don't feel like you missed it. Don't feel like welcome. you're currently being welcome to the Grove. On Wednesday, we brought this idea to them, and we passed this motion. The motion was fourfold. We said, essentially, first of all, to the communications team, Go back and find a good name, uh, a name, propose us a name with the word grove in it. So is it the Grove Church? Is it Church of the Grove? Is it the Grove? Whatever. Go, go take Grove and make a name. 
okay? The second thing we sent them to do was to go take the word Baptist and make it, get a, get a good tagline or a byline with the word Baptist in it. Because though the Baptist is not in the name grove, we don't want to be too displaced from it. We don't want Baptist in the front of the name because it's a challenging word that few people understand in this day and age, in this geography, in this zip code. There's as many misconceptions as right conceptions. And so we said we don't want it in the name, but we don't want it far away because people who are looking for a Baptist church, we don't want it to be so dislocated that we're hiding from it or that they won't be able to find it. And so we said, give us a tagline or a byline with the word Baptist in it. And then we said, and then the third one was, give us guidelines about how these, the, the name and the byline work together, how they live in the life of the church. So the byline, does it show up on the bulletin? Does it show up on the website? How does it all work together, we said. And then on Wednesday, we added a fourth idea to this. We said, take the word church and make sure you've thought out the best place for that to be there because we don't want that to be uh, thoughtlessly left out or cared for. We said we kind of stamped on that. And we said that's an important word. Make it live in the, an important place. So that was the motion that passed. And throughout the next month, after, after Easter, the month of April, we're going to be talking as a church about what it means to be one church and working through that. And during each Sunday, you'll get updates as we head towards the name. But we're working towards this name. We're vetting this name as a church. And uh, that is the process. So I cannot do this every Sunday, but I ought to do it on some Sunday. Just to share with you how we got here, it has not been easy, but it has been honest, and this is how we got here. Can we pray? Lord, we do pray that you continue to bless this church in our effort to be faithful to you, and that our faithfulness to you would be seen in the way we, we uh, name ourselves. Lord, you have been in the business of giving your people new names. And Lord, so we pray that uh, the name you give us would be uh, faithful and that we would become that, uh, become the name to this world uh, in a faithful way. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 22. If you're using one of the ones we've provided, it's page 733. Our sermon series is on the, la- the upper room, the conversations that happened during the Last Supper. And I think it's, find it ironic that we're talking about the upper room on Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday is a day of victory. It's where the victory of the kingdom is so pronounced, and yet it's four or five days away from utter rejection. And there's, a t- there's at times it's appropriate for us to deal with the rejection of Christ on Palm Sunday, almost just to deal with, you know, whether it was a Sunday or a Monday that he entered into Jerusalem, just a few days later he was on a cross. And uh, we should push those ideas together and ask some questions about it. Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 35 to 38. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you out without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what 
is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Jesus begins this teaching, this part of the conversation, with um, a statement that's roughly equivalent to this. Do you remember when? Do you remember when, is what he's asking the the disciples. In fact, I I want you to see the moment that he's talking about. Turn back, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. Again, if you're using one of ours, it's page 719. But Luke chapter 9, verse 1. I'm just going to read six verses here. Now listen to this. It says in 9 verse 1, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So the Lord sends out his apostles two by two and their ministry is wildly successful. They go out and in fact they do heal. In fact, Herod in verse seven hears about it. Now Herod the Tetrarch, he heard about everything that was happening. It was a huge time in the life of the church. In fact, it's a big chapter in the gospel of Luke. They return, if you look at verse 10, they return, and the next thing that happens is the feeding of the 5,000. That's the next thing. In fact, it's in that narrative that they return to Christ. And then in the same chapter is the transfiguration. I mean, it is just a big, wildly successful moment in the life of ministry of, of, of Christ and of the disciples. Everything's going right for them. There's this power. And, and don't miss the significance of this. Jesus Christ has sent them out And they are now healing people in his name. So Jesus heals people in the name of the Father. And now his disciples are doing the same thing in the name of the Son. I mean, it's profoundly Trinitarian. They have the power of the Spirit, healing through the name of the Son, as the Son healed in the name of the Father. So it is a watershed moment, if you want to think of it, for what the implications of it, that the power of this man, the Messiah, extends even to his followers when they are beyond line of sight, when when they are in a different town preaching the truth of Christ. And Jesus is like a rock star at this point in the story feeding the 5,000, Herod's hearing about it, the transfiguration. Happens again in Luke chapter 10. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'll read the first four verses and then I'll skip down a little. It says this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. And they go. And look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Wildly successful. In fact, it's once again even more significant. It's not simply that Jesus heals in the name of the Father or that the apostles heal in the name of Jesus. 72 others can do it also. 
This is not apostolic. That the power of Christ goes to whom Christ gives it, period, dot. And they say, even the demons submit to us in your name, which, by the way, if this was our focus passage, I would kind of push on that. Heal to us in your name. I have to wonder, like, maybe do I think Jesus Christ actually gives a, a very Christian caution to this. Look at 18. He replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However... Do not rejoice that the spirit, spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's wildly successful. You can turn back to chapter 22, if you would. I think these are unique moments. They're unique in the scriptures. This doesn't happen. It's not like Jesus, this wasn't his routine of people come and he sends them and comes and sends them. He does it twice. I think these moments are done for a purpose. And the purpose, the unique purpose that's being used here is that Jesus Christ is using these opportunities to instill faith in his apostles and his followers. He's giving them easy success is what he's giving them. He's sending them out. Obviously, you have to imagine, it must still take faith for the apostles to leave the Messiah you know, cross the horizon, put him out of sight and still preach in his name and say to someone who's possessed by an evil spirit, come out in the name of Jesus Christ. It still takes faith. You and I know it takes faith. We, we don't walk around doing that, just willy-nilly. It's not, I mean, it takes faith. So it's an exercise of faith, but what the Lord did is he blessed it richly. It just had success, it, surprising success to these apostles in such a way as to stamp in them and validate in them that the power of God is real and that they can exercise the power of God in the name of Jesus Christ whether he's there or not. It was kind of the way that the Lord was building, slowly building their faith by kind of giving them an umbrella of protection and showing them like my power is sufficient. He sent them out without sandals. Monkishly into the world. I mean, what he did is he stripped them down so that there was no hint of the ability to fend or care for themselves. Don't take money. Don't wear shoes. Go and preach my name. And I think Jesus does this. I think the Lord does this people's lives. Sometimes they give, the Lord gives us a call to step out in faith. We step out in faith and he gloriously blesses us beyond our wildest imagination in his kingdom work. So as to say, see, you can do this. I'm here. The power of God's present. And in fact, it reminds me of Loma. Our efforts to plant or to go downtown and do Loma and subsequently open the ministry space and subsequently plant a church and subsequently find a pastor and all of that. The fact that they're worshiping downtown right now, this reminds me of it. This idea that, you know, the Lord may asked us to step out in faith and that when we, it wasn't easy. I'm not saying it was easy. It was a step of faith. But I'm saying when we did step out in faith, it was, by most estimates, wildly successful. More successful than it ought to have been we are not that good. We should note that. It went better than we are good. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. I'm not saying that plenty of you didn't do lots of work. 
I'm saying, sure, all of that happened. But it's like we kind of monkishly went downtown. In fact, when we were going through the process, that was the challenge. And some of us like, you don't really know how to do this. But it was kind of the Lord's step out. Come on, step out in faith. And we kind of, and it went great. I mean, as we speak, there's a fellowship of Christ worshiping the Lord at 239 North Market Street. How can that not be wildly successful? I think sometimes the Lord does that. I think the Lord does that to connect the synapses of our faith to our muscles so that we do it one time and we get success. He goes, okay, you can do this. You can do this. Because things might change one day. And I think that's kind of what's happening here in Luke chapter 22 is Jesus is calling them to remember that. Do you remember that time? He says to the disciples, remember when I sent you out with no purse, no bag, no sandals? Did you lack anything? And they say, no, Jesus. We didn't like anything. And he says, well, that's about to change. Right? Isn't that what he says? Verse 36. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. You see the change? Remember when I sent you out without it? Well, things are changing, he says. Not so anymore. Now, bring your purse, bring your bag. In other words, there's no provision that's going to be there for you. Like, used to be you'd go in with no money and someone would take you in and feed you. He says, that's not going to happen anymore. Now it's going to be difficult. And he says, in fact, in fact, now, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak. In fact, you'd rather be cold. You'd rather be sitting in a ditch cold at night, shivering, trying to get to sleep, than be unarmed. That's kind of the implication. That's how it's going to be now, is what he says to the apostles. Now, I, will, I want to keep going, but I know I've got to pause on sword because it's, it's kind of a big word. I'll just say this is not, in my opinion, so this is an aside, okay? This is not, in my opinion, a call to Christian arms. Not at all, okay? I'll give you four quick reasons, uh, and then we'll just move on. First of all, the Lord says at the very end, that's enough. Right, right after he says this, you can even tell the apostles glommed on the word sword. Like, yes! Finally! Whooshing! I'm ready, right? We got two swords, and Jesus goes, I actually think it's more like Jesus kind of is like, you missed it. That is enough. Like, it's enough. But first, it's gotta, it can't be about Christian conquest, because if you're like the 11th apostle, you don't have a sword. I think you'd raise your hand and go, I don't think it is enough. I don't have one, right? It's two swords. It's not enough to do anything. And in fact, later in the chapter, in verses 47 through 53, when Jesus is arrested, one of the two brings that, brandishes the sword and chops off the enemy's ear, to which Jesus goes, don't do that. Golly, he takes the ear and sticks it back. Sorry, dude. Stop it. You guys are making me look bad. He does that, right? I mean, he says no more of this in verse 51. Enough of this tomfoolery. Put your swords away. Didn't you get it? It's enough. Put the swords away. It was, it was symbolic is what he's saying. I was making a point. Here's the third reason. There's zero record in the entire New Testament of the early church taking up arms. Zero. That counts for a lot. That those who received the word first did not interpret it as a charge to Christian arms. Okay? And fourth, uh, it would go against the total grain of this teaching. 
Remember when you had victory in Christ? Well, not anymore. Go get a sword and take over the world. It just, none of that works. So there's your four reasons. It's essentially, it's, it's in, in line with the general spiritual teaching of before I sent you out in power with protection. Now there's no protection. That's what he's saying is, is now you are hunted. Now you are considered an outlaw. In fact, now you are numbered with the transgressors. You see how he builds 36 on top of 37. He, says, he points him right to Isaiah 53, the one that was read earlier this service, and says, in fact, the very same thing is happening to me. Just as the prophet said, I myself am being numbered with the transgressors, and by correlation, so will you. That's what's, that's what's happening here in verses 36 and 37. 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. He's calling them to, he's reminding them that what's about to happen to him, this rejection, this, this um, being numbered with the, uh, the, out, the outsiders or the outlaws, all of that that's happening is, is gonna happen. It's fulfillment, and it's gonna happen to them too. And from that, we can draw several things. First, this is yet another time in the Last Supper, in the upper room, that Jesus Christ has made it very clear to his apostles that his rejection is not failure, it's fulfillment. The rejection of Jesus Christ is not failure, it's fulfillment. How many times has he said that through this, in one way or another, through the entire evening of the Last Supper? I will not drink of the fruit of the vine with you again until I suffer and the kingdom is restored. One of you will deny, reject me, betray me. I mean, how many times has he done this throughout the evening of saying, I have a foreknowledge that this is in the plan. My rejection is not failure, it is fulfillment. And in the same way, as is the case with, with us and in the world, this is the point to appreciate, is that the rejection of Christ was not haphazard. It was not willy-nilly. But rather, in fact, it is what happens when a loving God comes to a world that hates him. This is, Jesus is saying, this is the nature of the earth. The nature of the earth is one that will reject me. Not because God is not loving, but precisely because he's truly loving. The world does not want the true love of God. The world wants to be worshipped by God. That's what we really, that's what we want in our own natural skin and bones, in our flesh. What we actually desire is for the Lord to come down or for anyone and everyone to come down and love us the way we want to be loved. We want to set the conditions for love and then have people fall lock, stock, and barrel into those conditions and love us the way we want to be loved. Jesus Christ does not do that. Because he loves us so much, he comes down and loves us the way we ought to be loved. And the way that we ought to be loved is to be loved with the truth of God. It infuriates the earth that Jesus loves God more than he loves people. It infuriates us at some level in us that Jesus doesn't twist or step away from the truth of God in order to draw close to us. That's what we want or we feel. We all feel this experience, this frustration when we're reading the love of God that was poured out for us, the word that was spoken on our behalf, the revelation of God himself to us. And we read it and we find something that says something about us that we don't want to hear. We want to pull that out 
and act like God still loves us. I would rather God love me without this page in Scripture is what we want to do, whether it's your refusal to forgive, whether it's your refusal to repent, whether it's your refusal to bow down, whether it's your refusal to follow, whether it's your desire for something besides the Lord, this intense desire to have it instead of the Lord, all of that. We want the Lord to love us, but mankind is hostile to the idea that God will not love us apart from the Lord. We reject him because he will not worship us. The rejection of Christ is not failure. It is fulfillment. It is what will happen when the love of God enters the land of men, which means it happens to his followers as well. That's what he's saying. Remember when I sent you out? It isn't going to be that way anymore. Now you're going to feel the rejection of the world because you now carry the love that I carry to the world and the world does not want it. And for this reason, it will be a common Christian experience to the followers of Christ. Now in a moment, we're going to ask three questions, but I want to say this before we do. To say that we now, or the apostles now, are free from the protection of Christ is not to say that they're being pulled away from the power of Christ. He doesn't say that here or anywhere in Scripture. So the Lord is saying, remember when I sent you out in power and you didn't need anything? And they said, yes. He says, it's not going to be that way. That's not the same thing as saying, well, my power will no longer be with you. In fact, remember in Luke 10 when, when we read, and they said, wow, even the demons submit to us in your name, Jesus. And he said, listen, I saw Satan thrust out of heaven like lightning, and you'll give, be given the power to step on the heads of scorpions and serpents. He, he bestowed upon them power. That, it's, God is not saying that the power of the Spirit is no longer with us. He's saying the protection. The protection is being pulled away from them. That's what he's saying. Uh, once again, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, the Lord says, All power and authority has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not saying his power is not with us. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, I'm endowing you with my power, now go. Doesn't endow us with his protection. Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down, fills the apostles with power. They preach with power. They speak in tongues. They, they, they heal the sick. They fix the lame. They cast out demons. All this power, does that mean that they experienced the unending protection of God? No. Almost every apostle was martyred. Almost every single apostle was martyred. One of them that we know of died of old age in exile. He got the cancellation prize. To be in the power of God does not necessarily mean to be in the protection of God. Or to appreciate the victory of the kingdom does not necessarily coordinate with a long and happy life. The enemy cannot harm us, but the enemy may be able to kill us. So here's some questions. Three questions. If rejection and hostility are common to the Christian life, we have to ask these three questions. One, can we therefore equate faithfulness to God 
with the success of a godly effort. Can we therefore equate our faithfulness to the Lord with the success of a godly effort? The answer is no. You cannot. You cannot say that if God told me to do it, it will be successful. We are not, as a church, permitted to say that. All the time, everywhere. Now, oftentimes in life, life is complex and confusing. So oftentimes, when are we ever perfectly faithful? It's difficult to have the kind of perfect faithfulness that we're talking about. We're generally faithful sometimes, but still, we cannot say if a success, if something was unsuccessful, we say, well, they weren't faithful. We can't say that. We're not allowed to say that. Simply as a correlation. It's a simple correlation between those two things. Likewise, if something's wildly successful, we can't necessarily say they're wildly faithful. God's will and his kingdom prevail. God may want to do something through your pathetically faithful effort to glorify himself. And God may want to use your profoundly faithful effort so that someone else years down the road can build on your failure. You cannot correlate your faithfulness with the effectiveness of of a godly effort. Question number two. To those of you in failure, do you hear this? I just gotta say that. Do you hear it? Be faithful. Question number two. What are the implications of a life that meets no resistance? I'll let you answer that on your own. I'll just read a little scripture in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the world, the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teachings, they will obey yours also. What are the implications of a life that meets no resistance? I don't want you to draw a false assumption, especially like young men. I don't want you to think, well, therefore resistance means I'm being faithful. Like the charge of Christ is not to, like Christian tomfoolery, to run headlong and get scars Okay. In fact, the teaching in Luke 22 seems to be a lot more sensitive. Right? The, the feeling you get is run and hide, be careful, survive, be faithful. Not, be, not, not Christian bravado to go get punched in the face. That's not the goal. The goal is to be faithful and careful. In fact, we, we preached a sermon series called The Scattering, 2010. It's where Gross Bread Mature came out of, for those of you who are here. There's a great verse in Acts chapter 8 where the persecution falls on the church, and it says this, those who were scattered preached the word of God wherever they went. And I remember asking the church the question, God's not asking you if you'd martyr. He simply wants to know if you scatter. He's not, God's not necessarily asking you guys to run headlong into, into death, but he does want to know if we're faithful enough that when hard times come, we'll grab our bag and our shoes and our pack and we'll, we'll go hide and we'll preach the gospel somewhere else. If they won't have me here, I'll find a way to preach it there. That's the question. What are the implications of a life that meets no resistance? And listen, I'm, you cannot call your, the, 
the hardship that's coming through your lack of faith as resistance. Okay, if you want to make bad decisions and your life gets hard, don't chalk that up to faithfulness. Question number three. What then must our motivation for a step of faith be? God does not promise success. How, does, how are we then motivated to make a step of faith? There's no promise. Rather, there's a guarantee of resistance. That's all that's given to us is a guarantee of resistance. The Lord didn't, didn't say you might be successful. The Lord said, I am not promising you that you're going to walk into a town that's going to be wildly successful. But I will say this, that, that if they crucified my son, they will crucify you. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute you. Jesus points to the cross and he says, you see the cross? The world is by its nature hostile to the true love of God and the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you proclaim it faithfully, the world will be hostile to you. You are being countercultural. You're doing something that is outlawed in the sinful heart of man. What then is our motivation? I think our motivation is this, to delight in the law of God, to love Jesus. That is the motivation for a step of faith. The motivation for a step of faith is to be a follower of God that is close to the Lord, that enjoys the Lord, that wants to be like the Lord, that walks in the footsteps of the Lord, that wants to do stuff for the Lord. And so when the Lord asks us to do something, the estimation of the reaction of the world does not really factor into it. That we, we step in faithfulness to the Lord because we, we value the rays and the sun that come from God. That's, that is the motivation for righteousness among true followers of Jesus Christ. Do you hear? There is no room in the gospel for prosperity gospel. None. God says, you may not be successful, but you must be faithful because I love you and my son died for you. The Christian life is lived between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. There is not a lot of time between those two. We don't have a lot of time on this earth and things can change in a moment. Are you a follower? Will you pray with me? Lord, we do ask and pray that you would make this church successful in the ministry of the gospel. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask and pray that you would make the ministries of this church the ministries of this church touches, the families in this church, the people that the families of this church touch, Lord, that you would make, that you would, in fact, give us kingdom success, Lord. How can we not want that? We want that, Lord. We ask for it. We pray, but Lord, we, we pray that you would give us a faithfulness, a faithfulness that's strong enough to endure failure because we understand that it is the way of the cross. Lord, give us a delight in you. Give us a fellowship with you, Father. So that the situation of this world would would not alter or affect our faith, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.